Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, pedophilia, sexual assault, and rape that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. One night in January of 1981, Randy Woodfield sped down Interstate 5 near Salem, Oregon. As he cruised his favorite highway, something he saw piqued his interest, and he pulled off at the next exit. Randy had his sights set on a specific building, Transamerica Title Building, but he didn't want to draw any unwanted attention in his gold Volkswagen, so he parked about a mile away and jogged towards the office. To make sure he wasn't recognizable, he wore a hooded sweater and affixed a piece of tape to his nose, obscuring his features. When he reached the building, Randy lurked in the parking lot, taking in the sight that at first caught his eye. Inside the lobby, 20-year-olds Sherry Hull and Beth Wilmot were hard at work cleaning the space. Randy watched for a few minutes until he was sure they were alone. Perfect. After a few moments, Sherry stepped outside, heading toward her car. That's when Randy stepped into her path, showing her the gun in his hand. Gesturing with the weapon, Randy herded Sherry back inside, where he also intercepted Beth. Randy forced the two women into a back room and told them to strip. As they did, he watched their fear intensify. It must have been a terrifying experience for the two young women, but they had no idea just how bad things were about to get. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we finish our exploration of Randy Woodfield, who terrorized the West Coast as the I-5 killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last time, we discussed how Randy's escalating violence toward women went largely unchecked. So by the time he killed his first victim, he thought he was invincible. Today, we'll follow Randy's manic string of robberies, sexual assaults, and murders along the I-5. But as terror spread, so did a damning trail of evidence. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the fall of 1980, 29-year-old Randy Woodfield's violence reached a new height when he raped and murdered his close friend, Sherry Ayers. He stabbed her repeatedly in the neck, then fled her Portland, Oregon home. The next day, on October 11th, Sherry's fiancé let himself into her house around 9 p.m. When he stepped into the bedroom, he froze, horrified by the sight of Sherry's bloodied body draped across the bed. When the police arrived, they collected samples of semen and blood, but found little else of note. With no other physical evidence, officers questioned Sherry's friends. One person mentioned Sherry's friendship with Randy, which was a relatively new development. Intrigued, Detective Bob Dornay did some digging and discovered that Randy had recently left prison, which was the first red flag. Then Sherry's mother said she believed Randy was her daughter's killer. She'd known him since he was in second grade and had watched their hometown fawn over the young athlete. But she always felt uncertain about him. Still, her suspicion wasn't enough for an arrest. So Detective Dornay questioned Randy, who insisted he would never hurt anyone, much less a friend. During the interview, he was polite, earnest, and soft-spoken. His demeanor made it hard for Dornay to believe Randy had ever served time, much less that he killed someone. But still, Randy's answers didn't add up. Not only were his alibis vague, but he refused to take a polygraph test. Investigators were conflicted. Randy didn't act like a killer, but something felt off about him. So Dornay's team turned to the DNA evidence just to make sure. At this stage, this meant blood tests, which was a much more rudimentary form of the science. The blood they tested was type O, which seemed to rule out Randy, who was type B. But O-type blood can be found in type A and type B. Unfortunately, this fact wasn't considered or was dismissed. And that was the end of that. Randy was taken off the suspect list and free to go about his life. Randy had walked away from plenty of charges for minor crimes, but now he'd gotten away with murder, and he was ready for more. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. As a note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. 
To our knowledge, he hasn't ever been diagnosed as a psychopath, but Ramdi displayed some of the key hallmarks of one. And a 2010 case study by Frank Perry showed how manipulative a psychopath could be under interrogation. Perry's analysis centered on interviews with psychopathic killers and warned that they don't just tolerate the hot seat, they enjoy it. The study quoted Dr. Robert D. Hare, who described the thrill as duping delight. This term fit Randy quite well. When police declared him innocent, he likely felt power over authority figures. It probably also reinforced the notion that he could do anything he wanted with zero consequence. After skating through the murder investigation, Randy might have wondered what else he could get away with. But while he considered his options, Randy wanted to relive his glory days. So he traveled to Tacoma, Washington to see his friend, Tim Rossi. Tim and Randy met at Portland State University and lived together in college. Back then, Tim had thought of his roommate as a shy, friendly, religious man. But five years on, he hardly recognized Randy. He talked obsessively about college football and his former team, the Packers, not to mention women, drinking, and sex. As if to make a point about his romantic life, Randy often excused himself to call a girl he knew. It would seem that Randy placed a lot of self-worth in his ability to attract women. Before he was cut from the NFL, Randy felt the gratification of being a football star. But now that he didn't have that, he approached women frantically and desperately. He came on so strong that many women found him strange and rejected him outright. Still, Randy was persistent, so he collected dozens of phone numbers a week, and he dialed them constantly. It feels fair to say that Randy needed constant affirmation and attention, and these phone calls helped that. Whether it was an old friend or someone he met once at a bar, Randy needed to call them, even if it meant interrupting his weekend with his college friend. Tim wasn't sure about the new Randy, but it was a short visit. Plus, he enjoyed the company because his girlfriend, Darcy Fix, another college friend of Randy's, had just broken up with him. When he heard about the breakup, Randy was strangely livid. This might have been because Randy didn't react well to women rejecting him. For example, when his college girlfriend, Sharon, broke up with him, he vandalized her family home. In a 2017 psychodynamic behaviorist investigation of a sexual serial killer, researchers proposed that offenders choose victims due to displaced aggression. If the attacker believed someone in their life had wronged them, they targeted people who reminded them of that person. This might be why Randy reacted so strongly to Tim's news. Darcy had humiliated his friend, and Randy took that personally. A few weeks later, Randy called Darcy. Like many women, Darcy had gotten friendly phone calls from him over the years, and they got to chatting. Eventually, Randy decided to pay her a visit. It's unclear what Randy had in mind at first, but when he arrived, everything happened quickly. Darcy's new boyfriend, Doug, was also at the apartment, and seeing the two of them together infuriated Randy. He pulled out a gun and bound their hands and feet with athletic tape. Then he raped Darcy and shot them each in the head. When they were both dead, Randy left the apartment, careful not to leave any physical evidence behind. When the murder was discovered, police were baffled. The athletic tape Randy used to restrain his victims stood out, but couldn't be traced. So, like with Sherry, investigators asked Darcy's friends for help, and Randy's name came up once again. 
Officers questioned Randy, but there wasn't enough evidence to make him a suspect. So he walked away from his second and third murders with even less trouble than the first. After that, Randy only increased his criminal activities. He was frequently unemployed, but maintained a fairly lucrative lifestyle by robbing fast food restaurants and convenience stores. Tony, a prison buddy, disguised himself by using tape to cover his nose and held up businesses throughout 1979 and 1980, getting better every time. In December of 1980, Randy, with help from Tony, kicked off a string of small-time heists over a 150-mile stretch of Interstate 5. The I-5 is the main highway that runs along the West Coast from Mexico to Canada, and Randy loved driving it. He'd often signal to women in other cars to pull over so he could ask for their phone numbers to add to his growing collection. And not only was the highway an opportunity for adventure and women, it was also great for crime. When Randy felt inspired, he pulled off the freeway and searched for vulnerable stores. There seemed to be only one criteria for his targets. The cashiers needed to be young women. Randy chose to rob teenage girls because they were weaker targets. While this was a factor, Randy never missed an opportunity to scare women. On December 21st, 1980, five days before his 30th birthday, Randy walked into a fast food joint near Seattle. Inside, he noticed a young employee, 25-year-old Kim Meehan. He kept his eye on her, and when she took a break to go to the bathroom, he followed. Randy walked in as Kim splashed cold water on her face. He closed and locked the door behind him, trapping her inside. Then he pulled the gun from his pocket and held it to Kim's head and sexually assaulted her. Instead of killing her when he finished, he told her to wait five minutes so he could escape. Then he fled. As far as we can tell, this was the first time Randy sexually assaulted a cashier or attendant without robbing the store. And it seems the incident made him realize that he didn't need motivators like revenge or money. He could take whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it and nothing was going to stop him. Coming up, Randy finds love and creates more carnage. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed, confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. In the midst of his 1980 string of robberies up and down the I-5, 30-year-old Randy Woodfield fell in love. 
He was in a bar in Eugene, Oregon on December 30th when he met 21-year-old Shelly Jansen. Shelly was a beautiful university student, and she responded well when Randy came on strong. On that very first night, he even brought up starting a family together, and she didn't think it was too soon. On the contrary, she believed she'd found someone who shared her values. Their relationship blossomed, and Randy loved how much Shelly cared for him. He even agreed to waiting to have sex, though he had no issues with oral sex. He also had no issues sleeping with other women at this time. Not that his new girlfriend knew that. Eventually, Shelly returned to New Mexico for school. Unsurprisingly, Randy called her almost every day and sent letters, which was a relief to Shelly, who might have feared the distance would spell the end for their burgeoning relationship. However, a long-distance relationship was no trouble for Randy. After all, he'd been writing to and calling dozens of other women for years. So what was a little time apart from Shelly? Without Shelly around, Randy immediately returned to his old habits. Within the first two weeks of January, he robbed three stores, shooting one attendant in the shoulder and forcing another to remove her blouse. Just like before, Randy spread out these hits along the Interstate 5, and though he seemed to genuinely love the I-5, there may have been a more practical reason he used the highway. In 2015, researchers at St. Mary's University of Minnesota studied the geographical habits of serial killers and found that typically, offenders learned to spread out their attacks once they were more experienced and established. It's possible that Randy knew distancing his crimes would place them in various jurisdictions. By spreading his crimes out, he was also minimizing the chance that investigators would notice any patterns. Those patterns became even harder to spot when Randy switched up his usual M.O. On January 14, 1981, Randy watched a car leave a house in Corvallis, Oregon. Sure, he'd found an easy target. He walked up to the house and knocked on the front door. A little girl, 10-year-old Mary Sue Green, answered the door, and Randy invited himself inside, explaining that his car had broken down and he needed to call for help. Of course, this was a lie. Once he was inside, Randy sexually assaulted Mary Sue and her eight-year-old sister at gunpoint, then left before their mother returned. Crucially, he left both girls alive. This attack marked a distinct change in Randy's pattern. While he usually preferred younger women, he rarely targeted children. But this shift suggests we can classify Randy as a power or control-oriented killer. Typically, these attackers aren't sexually motivated, but rely on sexual acts to make their victim feel helpless. It's possible that all Randy wanted was to dominate his victims, and two small girls were an easy target. But it still wasn't enough. Just four days later, on January 18th, Randy was on the I-5 just outside of Salem, Oregon. While driving, he spotted two women inside the Transamerica Title Building. Beth Wilmot and Sherry Hull, both 20, cleaned the building every Sunday and were there alone. After seeing the women, Randy pulled off the I-5 and parked his car a mile away. He ran to Transamerica's parking lot and watched the girls get ready to leave. They were almost done and were getting ready to go home, but Randy knew they wouldn't be going anywhere. As Sherry went outside to her car, Randy stepped out of the shadows holding his gun. He cut her off and brought her back inside. Then he led both women into a back room, where he sexually assaulted them for about 20 minutes. 
Only when he was satisfied did Randy realize he didn't have anything to tie up his victims so they couldn't sound the alarm when he left. Beth said they wouldn't tell anyone, but Randy didn't believe her. He needed to silence them. He shot both of them in the head, then fled, sprinting back to his car. Sherry died from her wounds, but Beth somehow survived her injuries. Not only was Beth alive, but the bullet that narrowly missed Beth's brain provided key evidence for the police. Detective Dave Komanek from the Marion County Sheriff's Department took on the case. It was clear early on that it was going to be a difficult investigation. Luckily, Beth was a useful eyewitness. She could describe Randy's large build, handsome features, brown hair, and the curious tape over his nose. Armed with a composite sketch and bullets from Randy's gun, Detective Komanek distributed information to other police departments in the area, hoping similar crimes might help him find the killer. And while investigators spread their net wide, Randy was blissfully unaware that Beth had survived and that she was a danger to him. Besides, he had plans of his own to attend. On January 30th, he met up with his girlfriend Shelly in San Francisco. The besotted couple had a romantic weekend together, and when it was over, Randy proposed. They'd only known each other for a month, but Shelly was sure of her feelings. She immediately said yes. Perhaps eager to share the happy news, Randy planned to visit his sister in Shasta County, California, on his way home. But when he called his sister to check in and confirm their plans together, she told him that her husband didn't want Randy in their home. It seems his brother-in-law had a bad feeling about Randy and didn't want him around. As we mentioned earlier, Randy likely targeted victims who reminded him of the women in his life, especially the ones he felt had rejected him in some way. And now here was his sister casting him aside. Despite this revelation, Randy still headed for Shasta County. But on February 3rd, instead of driving to his sister's house, he stopped in nearby Redding. The town was the perfect place for Randy to vent his fury. His rage needed an outlet, so he didn't waste time before stopping at a fast food restaurant. He held the employees at gunpoint and grabbed what cash he could, then sexually assaulted an 18-year-old cashier before fleeing into the night. But it wasn't enough for Randy. After that, he drove into a residential area and broke into the home of the Eckerd family. Inside, he cornered 37-year-old Donna Lee and her 14-year-old daughter, Janelle, and forced them into a bedroom. He bound Donna Lee, then turned his attention to Janelle. He forced her to strip, then shot her several times in the head while her mother watched. He then killed Donna Lee in the same way and raped Janelle's body. Once he was satisfied, Randy walked back to his car and started heading home to Oregon, leaving a horrific scene behind. Janelle's 12-year-old stepsister stumbled into that scene just minutes after Randy left. She called the police, who collected evidence, including the bullets Randy used to kill his victims. With information about the bullets and reports of the fast food holdup from that same evening, Redding police noticed a chilling similarity. Both attacks bore striking resemblances to the crime they just heard about from their colleagues in Marion County. Having seen Beth Wilmot's description of her attacker, they called Detective Komanek immediately to share what they knew. But they weren't the only people who recognized Randy in Komanek's composite photo. By this stage, Komanek had received many calls from various states with stories of similar crimes and a suspect who matched Randy's description. Slowly, Komanek realized he wasn't just hunting a murderer. 
he was on the trail of a serial killer. But Randy wasn't concerned with the police. He was more focused on the upcoming holiday. Though Shelley was in New Mexico, Randy wanted to throw a Valentine's Day party for himself in Portland. So he rented a hotel room and invited a bunch of friends, mostly young women, to join him on the night of the 14th. But when the time came for Randy's big event, nobody showed up. He sat in the empty hotel room, steaming. Not content to spend the night alone, Randy reached out to one of his former flings, 18-year-old Julie Wrights. Julie lived in the area, and although she had broken things off, the two remained friends. At some stage, Randy hopped in his car and drove past Julie's house a couple of times, looking to see if anyone was home. What happened next is unclear. We know that a friend dropped Julie home sometime after 10 p.m., and that Randy eventually showed up on her doorstep. It's possible Julie invited him in and they started to catch up. Whether or not his visit was initially friendly, Randy definitely overstayed his welcome. Sometime in the early hours of the morning, he pulled out his gun and forced Julie upstairs into her bedroom where he sexually assaulted her. At one point, Julie seized an opportunity to escape. She ran out of the bedroom and down the stairs, trying to make it to the front door. She didn't make it. Randy fired his gun, hitting Julie in the head. As her body dropped, Randy fled the scene. While Julie's mother came home to find her corpse, Randy returned to his hotel to leave more voicemails for women. He was seemingly unfazed by his latest murder and not at all worried about being caught. But with Detective Kolbenek assembling evidence from dozens of crimes across Oregon, Washington, and California, Randy had plenty to worry about. Coming up, Randy's obsessive phone calls lead to his downfall. Now back to the story. On Valentine's Day of 1981, 30-year-old Randy Woodfield murdered his former girlfriend, Julie Wrights. Based on his previous murders, it seems Randy believed he was untouchable. But unbeknownst to him, the police were finally catching up. As with some of his earlier homicides, investigators asked Julie's friends about any suspicious characters in her life. And just like before, several of them named Randy. Detectives looked into the one-time professional football player. They discovered his criminal record and saw that he'd been suspected in three murder investigations. They knew they had to interview him. On March 3rd, 1981, just over two weeks after Julie's murder, Randy woke up to parole officers and detectives at his door. When they asked if he knew Julie Wrights, he frowned and said he didn't think so, but he agreed to go to the station to look at some photos. At the station, Randy acted like he finally recognized Julie when he saw her photo. He said that he dated her briefly, but that they were never intimate. Unconvinced, the detectives asked him to take polygraph and DNA tests, and Randy agreed. But then he changed his mind and declared that both tests were against his principles. He changed his story and admitted that he had had sex with Julie, but insisted that he didn't kill her. It seems he was sweating at last. And now that they caught him at a lie, the investigators were eager to press their advantage. They asked if they could search his house, and perhaps trying to restore the impression he was innocent, Randy agreed. Randy seemed to bristle at the accusations that he was a criminal. If he felt genuinely offended by the detective's questions, that might be what the DSM-5 calls narcissist injury. As we mentioned last time, Randy has never been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, but he did display some of the traits common to the condition. 
According to the DSM-5, people with NPD can't handle being criticized or being held accountable, which might explain Randy's seemingly uncharacteristic outbursts of rage. But angry or not, Randy gave them the permission they needed to search his room and car. While Randy was under surveillance, he called Shelley. She'd been missing him since they got engaged and apparently didn't want to be apart from him anymore. So they decided that she would drop out of college and move in with Randy. Overjoyed to start their life together, Shelley packed her belongings and started driving from New Mexico to Oregon. Still, Randy had bigger issues to worry about than his fiancée. The police found athletic tape in his home that matched the bonds that the I-5 killer had used in at least one attack, and his landlady offered even more evidence against him. Randy usually charged most of his phone calls to the woman he rented from and then paid her back later. So when the police started searching the house, she approached investigators to ask if her tenant could be the infamous I-5 killer. She thought it was strange he could afford rent and such large phone bills when he didn't seem to work much. Once the detectives learned about the phone calls, they checked to see where Randy's calls came from and when. While scanning the list, they realized that Randy made several collect calls from Shasta County the night of the Eckerd family murders. At first, the Eugene detectives thought they were just investigating one murder. Now, they suspected Randy was far more dangerous and deadly than they thought. They called Detective Komanek from Marion County, who rushed to Eugene, hoping to finally meet the killer and rapist he'd been chasing across three states. Komanek recognized Randy immediately. He looked so much like the composite sketches based on Beth's description, he felt confident they'd found their guy. Then, when he compared Randy's phone records to the time and place of the I-5 killer's crimes, it seemed undeniable. In his rush to maintain constant contact with so many women, Randy had created a map of his comings and goings. It aligned exactly with the I-5 killer attacks. While police dug deeper, the media caught wind of the investigation. News of the I-5 killer had made people anxious, so journalists were eager to update the story. Reporters heard investigators were looking at someone named Randy and quickly figured out who it was. By this stage, Randy was back home, but the media attention didn't seem to faze him too much. Still, he did burn some incriminating evidence in his fireplace. He threw the evidence into the flames, eager to keep it out of the hands of police. But they were closing in all the same. On March 5th, Detective Dave Komanek and a Eugene police officer knocked on Randy's door. He invited them in, gave them a tour, and seemed happy to talk. Randy kept the conversation light. Between tough questions, they talked about women and football, which was Detective Komanek's attempt to get Randy to relax. But like so many before him, he was left wondering about Randy's soft and friendly manner. It was difficult to imagine the charming man was capable of such heinous crimes. Fortunately, Komanek trusted the evidence and took Randy into custody for parole violation. There wasn't enough information to back up a murder charge just yet, but he was sure they'd get there eventually. Randy, however, seemed confident he would go free. The football star remained polite during his detainment and interrogation. But like last time, Randy tightened in anger any time he was asked a direct question about his crimes. So Komanek attempted to relax him with sports questions. Randy took the bait and slowly opened up. It's possible that he responded because he felt like the detectives recognized his masculinity and power. Komanek also threw in small talk about women and dating. 
Randy was more willing to show his darker side when discussing women. But even still, he maintained his innocence. However, that was getting harder to do. He refused the polygraph again and couldn't provide alibis for the nights of the I-5 killer attacks. He also didn't address the phone records, which placed him in towns near dozens of attacks. Things weren't looking good for Randy, but his fiance had no idea. While he was being interrogated, Sherry arrived in Eugene with a U-Haul, waiting to start her new life. When she found he wasn't home, Shelley called around to some friends. Learning that Randy had been arrested, she quickly contacted the detectives in charge of his case. She got a hold of detectives in Eugene and went on record about their relationship, even handing over their letters. She was confident Randy was innocent, but she was the only one. As Shelley stood behind her man, a bevy of his victims assembled to bring him down. At least 14 people who Randy had victimized took part in a police lineup on March 8th. Nearly all of the victims, including 10-year-old Mary Sue Green and 20-year-old Beth Wilmot, pointed to Randy as their attacker. In the end, Beth's identification was the most damning. Not long after she singled him out, Randy was charged with murder, attempted murder, and sexual assault. The media soon caught wind of the arrest and swarmed around Randy as he was moved from Eugene to the Marion County Jail. Randy threw back his shoulders and smiled wide at the cameras as Komenek led him into the prison. Randy reportedly told the detective that his one regret was not being able to change his clothes or shave before facing the press. That June, Randy's trial began, and it wasn't without drama. Alongside the physical evidence against him, various people took the stand to have their say. Beth Wilmot emotionally recounted the terror of Randy's attack on her and Sherry. Then Shelley was called forward for the defense, and she pleaded on behalf of her fiancé. Eventually, Randy himself took the stand, even though most attorneys discouraged this practice, and though he'd managed to charm his way out of punishment when he was growing up. That trick didn't work in the courtroom. The jury found 30-year-old Randy guilty on all counts, and he was sentenced to a prison term of life plus 90 years. Through it all, Randy maintained his innocence for years. But eventually, DNA evidence linked him to five more murders, as well as dozens of cases of sexual abuse. However, authorities decided not to prosecute these crimes to save their resources. Randy was already going to die behind bars. Besides, if he ever managed to get parole, those other murder cases would be ready to help send him right back in. It's possible that Randy Woodfield committed other robberies, sexual assaults, and even murders that have never been connected to him. Estimates from West Coast law enforcement found over two dozen murders that might have been his handiwork. But without a confession, the truth about these cases will likely die with him. The closest Randy ever came to admitting guilt was when he created a MySpace account in 2006 when he was 56 years old. He seemed to take responsibility for his crimes on his profile, saying, quote, I spend the remainder of my days in prison because I have committed a murder along with many other crimes. Then he followed that up with a claim to fame that he might prefer people focus on instead. He wrote, I once tried out for the Green Bay Packers. The only reason I didn't make it is because the skills I had to offer they didn't need at the time. It seems that even behind bars, Randy was fixated on what people thought of him and how much attention he got. Because some people's priorities never change.
Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll be back next week with a brand new story. For more information on Randy Woodfield, amongst the many sources we used, we found I-5 Killer by Anne Rule, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Kit Fitzgerald, with writing assistance by Mallory Cara and Joel Callan, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Serial Killers stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 